get your Bibles this morning, please turn to Malachi chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in chapter 2 and 3 today. The very end of chapter 2 is where we'll start. Chapter 2, verse 17. This is our third week in our series through Malachi called Return to Me. Uh, as we've been looking at this book and looking at the situation uh, that God is describing his character and, and his reassurance for the people of Israel in this final book of the Old Testament. And if you've been with us so far in this series, I hope that you've uh, appreciated the nature of this book as, as I have, as kind of this conversation with God. We've framed each sermon in this series so far with a question that Israel asks of God after he brings an accusation against them. And if you're a parent, uh, especially a parent of, of young kids, you can probably understand uh, how God is feeling with his question this morning. Uh, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, they ask, How have we wearied him? Through Malachi, God says, You have wearied me. You have worn me out. And I say this is applicable to, to parents because you know, I, I love being a dad. You know, Chandler is, is one of the greatest joys of my life, but sometimes, sometimes an 8.15 bedtime is a godsend. You know, we read the books and the Bible story and we brush our teeth and put on our jammies and we say our prayer and we lay them down and then, you know, you just get to sit on the couch for a few minutes because I'm worn out. Uh, but, you know, 20 minutes later, I look in on the monitor, and he's sleeping like an angel, and I think, you know, I, I miss that kid. You know, you just kind of go through these, this, these weariness, uh, even though, you know, you have love for them. But, of course, God isn't weary and worn out and get worn out in the ways that we do. God isn't looking at Israel and saying, you know, after thousands of years of watching over you and taking care of you, I am just, I'm, I'm worn out, I'm tired. He's not saying, I need a break. God has grown weary because despite all that he has done for Israel, despite choosing them in Abraham and delivering them from slavery in Egypt, despite providing for them and leading them through the wilderness, despite fighting for them in the conquest of the promised land and bringing them back to their homes after 70 years in exile, despite all of this, still they fundamentally misunderstand who he is. And that wearies God. They continue in their sin and their disobedience, and they doubt His goodness. Again, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied Him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. Or saying, Where is the God of justice? There's two phrases that God responds to their question with and how they've wearied Him. But really, though two phrases, it's one response together. How have we worn you out? And God gives them two answers, but one thought. It's, it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the first week, that Israel is, is looking around them, and they see their present circumstances and the difficulty of their situation, and it's causing them to doubt God's love. Their grand return from exile uh, in Babylon really wasn't as grand as they had hoped it would be. I'm sure they, they planned to return to Jerusalem in prosperity and fortune. They would ride into town while the nations, celebrate, nations around them celebrated with them and, and clapped them on the back and cried congratulations. They would return to the land flowing with milk and honey to find, well, milk and honey. Coming back home would, be the, would mean that everything would be better. Their situation, their circumstances had changed. But instead of being greeted and celebrated by the neighboring nations, they encounter opposition and conflict. 
Instead of milk and honey, they find heaps of rubble. Coming back home was supposed to mean their struggle was over, but in truth, things had rarely been this hard. And so Israel uttered these phrases, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? They say, look, look at the nations around us. Look at our overlords. Look at all of the people who don't worship God or respect God or fear God. And yet their lives are so much better than ours. They don't need to, to struggle and slave and scrape. They're living in luxury. Even though they're evil, God must be pleased with them because how, look how much better their lives are than ours. Even some in Israel have chosen to adopt these evil practices because they don't see the consequences happening. Last week we saw these priests in the beginning of in the end of chapter 1, the religious leaders of the day offering blemished and diseased animals breaking God's law willingly because they had grown weary of serving God. Later in, in chapter 2, we see powerful men dis- divorcing their wives, victimizing the women that they swore to protect with their lives. And so there's this idea that even in Israel, people have turned their ways on the goodness of God, on the good ways of God, because they don't see uh, their circumstances as one which will bring about punishment for them. And others have fallen prey to this idea of, where is the God of justice? Where is God in my hurt? Where is God when things are tough? Why is God not setting the wrongs right? We see this voice in other places in the Bible, kind of with the phrase of, why do the wicked prosper? And this has been a question that's been around almost as long as humanity itself. From the, almost the very beginning uh, of time, uh, one of the earliest books chronologically, Job. In that book, Job says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. People are facing constant opposition and oppression, some even at the hand of their own people, and wondering, where is God in my hurt? When will God make my situation right? And then we might not say things the same way. We've, we've probably all had a similar attitude to this one time or another. You know, when you're out of a job and resume after resume goes out and you keep hearing, we've found, we found someone else. Or when you, and your vows, when, your spouse, when you and your spouse vowed forever, but for one reason or another, forever came sooner than you expected. Or maybe it's a temptation that you can't seem to overcome or a diagnosis that you don't think you can beat. But whatever the case we have these moments where we say, God, I'm, I'm wholly devoted to you. My life is yours. And if it is, why is my life not going the way I want? But it's in these kinds of times, whether we doubt God's character or we doubt his goodness, that we have to remember his promise. And it's a promise he gives in chapter 3, verse 1. He tells them and he tells us, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. If you're familiar with your New Testament, uh, you probably recognize right away the promise that God is making. Malachi speaks of a messenger who will come before God himself. And of course, in doing so, he speaks of John the Baptist 
and of Jesus. John, who would come first and, and as a messenger to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts for the people for God's coming. We, we see this uh, in, in history, that when a king were to visit your city, he would first send a messenger ahead of him to, to prepare the way, to announce his coming and to give people time to, to get things right. You know, when a king is coming, you can't have potholes on the road. When a king is coming, you can't have high spots that, high spots that he might bottom out on. No, you have to prepare the way for the king's coming. A few weeks ago, I was at a, a surprise party, uh, and I was given the task, just by nature of where I was in the house, of looking out the front window, waiting for the person, uh, the birthday boy, to arrive. You know, I, I sit there waiting and waiting, looking for his car, and finally you say, what? He's here. This is the messenger that John speaks of, the one who will be there ahead of time to say, he's here, he's coming. But this promise that God makes is really a twofold promise. It's a promise for good things for those who are doing good and not so good things for those who aren't. For those who are asking, where is the God of justice? Where is God when injustice is happening? The promise is that God is on the way. But for those who are doing evil and who have turned their backs on God, the promise is still God is on the way. But the question is, what will he find when he arrives? Verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to you and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Israel has been crying out for God's justice only to find His justice turned against them. They thought that when God came, He would wipe out their enemies, but when Jesus did come, He was more concerned with wiping clean their hearts. And I want to pause here in kind of the flow of Malachi's statements just for two points of application. First, when it comes to justice, how we live matters. We know that our, our salvation is through faith, uh, by, by grace through faith. That, that what we do, the works that we do, aren't capable of saving us. But as people who are part of the covenant of God's people, how we live matters. Many in Israel are looking around and saying, God isn't punishing evil people for their wrongdoing, so why should we bother living good lives? And so while it seems like God was absent, they lived how they wanted it and they set themselves up on the thrones of their hearts. But the promise that God is making to them is that a day of reckoning is coming. For those who had lived justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with God, this day was good news. For those, though, who had taken advantage of others and lived as if they were in control, this day is not so good news. When I framed up that thought this week, uh, I kind of thought of one of my experiences as a kid. My brother and I were home uh, during the summer when school was out. My parents every day uh, would put on the counter a small list of chores for us to do. I know, summer buzzkill. Uh, 
but naturally, as kids who were out of school wanting to enjoy the break, we waited as long as possible to do those chores. I knew that my dad would arrive home sometime between 3.30 and 4, and he drove a big diesel truck. And there were days when I would hear that diesel truck roaring down the road, and if my chores were done, things were good. But if they weren't done, it was too late, and things were not so good. For us as Christians, the coming of God in Jesus the first time has already happened. But the truth is that he's coming again. And the return of Jesus is either a very good thing or a very bad thing. And either case is completely dependent on us. How we live as we anticipate Jesus coming matters. Secondly, when it comes to justice, how we treat others matters. And speaking to these areas where Jesus will bring justice, Malachi includes kind of a, a strange hit list. This, these areas what God will judge and bring justice to. He says, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. And I look at that list at first, and it seemed kind of like an odd an odd list, an odd assortment of sins to focus on. I mean, what, what do sorcerers, whatever that is, have to do with people who cheat on their spouses, have to do with people who lie in courts of law? But when you look closely, there's this common thread that knits all of these things together. That each of these is playing into a system of victimization. We see those in power not paying fair wages those who are victimizing the helpless, those who have arranged false witnesses in the courts and divorced their wives and left them, left them marginalized. The list goes on. But all of these things play into how Israel is treating those around them. We often think of our relationship with God as simply and strictly one as a vertical relationship. How we're relating to Him, how we are devoted and loyal to Him, how we are connected with Him. But we see often that God is just as concerned with our horizontal relationships, how we treat others around us, as He is with how we relate to Him. I can't help but think uh, of the recent situation uh, with Bill Hybels. Uh, those of you who aren't familiar with Bill Hybels, Bill is a, uh, was a mega church pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, uh, who in many ways kind of pioneered the church growth movement over the last 40 years. Uh, Bill had written more than 20 books and many Bible studies, some that our own small groups have gone through in years gone by. And by all accounts, he was a model preacher and Christian leader. But over the past few months, uh, more and more allegations have come out about Bill's uh, mistreatment and, and sexual victimization of some of the women that he worked with during his time in ministry. In fact, this past week, every elder of Willow Creek resigned along with both lead pastors. And I see this and think one of the most well-known Christian leaders of our time has virtually erased 40 years of successful ministry, all because of how he treated others. How we treat others as we anticipate Jesus coming matters. And so how will we live as we wait for the day of Jesus' return? The story of Malachi is a message to a group of people who have so hardened themselves to God that they no longer anticipate that the God of justice even cares about them 
or will ever show up? Have we fallen prey to the same kind of thinking? Have we stopped anticipating the coming of our God? Or do we await His coming as the one who will bring ultimate justice and set every wrong right? Do we live in expectation of His coming in a way that is reflected in how we live and how we treat others? Jesus Himself said it this way in Luke 18.8, He says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What is standing in the way of your faith? What is stopping you from giving your life to the God of justice? For some, the things that are standing in the way are not new things, but the same things that go all the way back to Malachi's day. Our world has done an excellent job of convincing us that right and wrong are not as clearly defined as Scripture makes it. And our world has done an excellent job of making sure that we don't believe that Jesus will ever come back. To the point that we begin to wonder if the God of justice even exists. But Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? When Jesus does return, when Jesus does come, will you be able to stand? To stand not on your own merit or accomplishments or heritage or pedigree or goodness, but only on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The justice of God demanded that a price be paid for sin. And the love of God led him to pay that price. And this is the only way that we could ever hope to stand when Jesus comes back. The only way that we can hope to stand before God's justice, His judgment of right and wrong, is by taking His righteousness as our own. The only way that we could ever hope to stand on the day of His coming is by kneeling before the cross and the throne. And so my invitation for you this morning is to take that knee. That if you've never done so before, if you've never taken a knee submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, that's something that needs to happen today. Because we don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when the diesel truck will be roaring down the road and the time will be too late. I know that personally, I have nothing to boast for except Jesus. Jesus who came and brought us this new covenant of life and peace, a new covenant that is a privilege for us to be called children of God, a new covenant that promises that death isn't the end for us, and that life and hope and peace and salvation are ours because of the righteousness of Jesus. I will never be able to stand on my own merit, and you will never be able to stand on yours. And we can either live in the denial of evil that resides within us, or we can trust and the victory of Christ. This morning, if you have a decision to make, whether it be submitting yourself to Jesus for the first time, or maybe just recommitting your relationship with Him, thinking and, and, and repenting of the distance that you've created between you and Him. Maybe there's times you question His goodness or His character and saying, God, I need to get back on track with you. I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. We'd love to be an encouragement in your walk with Christ. My hope 
is that we would look to the God of justice, the one who rights every wrong, as a day of expectation, of eagerness, a day that we look forward to as good news, because we have been found doing what is right in the way we live and the way we treat others as we await his coming. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning to thank you for your faithfulness, to thank you for the times that you have been so good to us when we haven't been good ourselves. God, we thank you that in those moments where we weary you, that still you are faithful, that still you are calling us back to you. And God, it's my prayer that we would not question your justice, but rather eagerly await the day of its coming. God, we look forward to the day when our faith will be made sight, when you will be coming on the clouds to rule and reign in, our new, in this new creation, in the new heavens and earth, bringing ultimate justice, bringing restoration and perfection and healing to a broken world. God, I pray that in the meantime, as we await your coming and as we await that justice, we would live in such a way that reflects your goodness and your character, that we would not commit ourselves to evil, living as if you don't exist, but rather live in eager expectation. God, I pray that we would treat others in such a way that doesn't victimize them or doesn't create distance between them and you, but rather lifts them up and points them to you, to a better way to live. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that Jesus came to die for us. And through his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. And it's in his name we pray this morning.